How do you know that tomorrow when you wake up out of bed, you are going to be a Christian? If you are one today. How do you know that you will not be overcome by the world or fall away? Because it happens. It happens all the time. And in our, our social media internet age, we hear about it. Quick. Churches exposed, pastors disgraced, authors, theologians walking away from the faith. I don't even have to give any names. You've all probably got a few running through your head as I say these things. How do you know you're not going to end up like one of them? Or maybe more likely, and a bit closer to home, in this sin-saturated world with a society that winks at evil and celebrates what God says and what is perverse, that enshrines immorality in song and advertises the idolatry of self, when that infects the world you live in down to something so completely meaningless as the wrapper on your sandwich, when it's infected the world around you that deeply, what hope do you have of it not infecting you? I think one of the greatest Christian fears or at least it ought to be one of the greatest Christian fears, is that we will do what James warns us so strongly not to do, and that we will become polluted by the world. In our day especially, sin has never been so invasive and ever-present and inescapable. You can't walk down the sidewalk without being bombarded by some... Uh, enticement to break the Ten Commandments. And so what are you going to do to shore up the walls of your heart? And what hope do you have once you have shored them up that those walls are going to stand? Well, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. It's the fifth or sixth last book in the Bible. And we're going to look at a character in the Bible who lived where you live and walked where you walk and was not taken captive by the sin around him but is held up here in these verses as an example of the Lord's power to keep and preserve and rescue His people. 2 Peter 2, 4-10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when He brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. 
Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would make Your Word alive to us this morning. Lord, it is alive. And I pray that we would be alive to hear it. I pray that You would write its truths into our hearts with an iron pen, that we would be strengthened and encouraged to press on and persevere and overcome, knowing that all of the strength to do so comes from You, and that is enough. You are able, Lord, to hold Your people. And so all of our striving and our work is assured. Not because we are so strong, Lord, but because You are so mighty and able to keep and save to the uttermost those who trust in Christ. Lord, bless the preaching of Your Word this morning and the hearers of it. And if anyone is here this morning who does not know You, I pray that You would show them, Lord, show them the danger that they face and the wonderful salvation that is open to them. In Your name we pray. Amen. Lot. We read about him in this passage. And Lot really has a bad reputation. Very often you hear Lot described as a, as a backslider, as a worldly Christian, if there can be such a thing. There's no such thing as a, as a carnal Christian like Lot is sometimes accused of being. Or sometimes you'll hear Lot described as just plain evil. He's a, a bad man. That's what the rabbis say. You're going to look at a, at a commentary on the life of Lot written by a rabbi. This is their estimation of him. He is full of greed, full of lust, and is an apostate for leaving Abraham. He's only recognized as a warning. That's what the rabbis say. But what does Peter say about Lot? He doesn't say that, does he? Similar to Samson. Samson, a Jewish rabbi writing about Samson, said, Samson should never be read aloud as he only exists as an example for us of what not to be. And yet in the book of Hebrews, it calls him a man of faith. An example of faith. One that may be weak or sometimes trembling, but one that certainly everyone in this room can relate to. And the reason the rabbis say this is because the rabbis are blind to what Scripture says. They're blind to what they say about Samson and what it says about Lot. Peter tells us unequivocally three times, Lot is a righteous man. Before we get to Lot, we have another example first. Angels that sin and Noah and the flood. And you don't have to turn there, but this is in Genesis chapter 6. And in that chapter, there is a, a controversial passage where it says, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took them to be their wives. And this has been interpreted really three ways. Either the sons of God in this passage are powerful and evil rulers, like pharaohs or ancient kings who would style themselves as sons of God, or the traditional reformed view that these were the, this was the godly line of Seth that married into the wicked line of Cain. There's some evidence to support that. Or uh, that these sons of God were fallen angels who left the realm of the angelic that God had consigned them to in order to take wives for themselves. And there has been really quite a bit of debate about this. Uh, I think if you read Jude... 1 Peter 3, the early church 
and uh, all of the Jewish scholars on the text, which all agree, they believe that it's undeniable that they were fallen angels. Uh, so you, you can talk to me afterward if you want to talk about that. Uh, Joel, where's Joel? There's Joel. <laughs> oh. But they've been taken, put in chain, condemned, and now are awaiting final judgment. And their perversion, what they were judged for, was they were lusting after that which is unnatural. And angels and men led to the expansion of evil in the world so great that the Lord destroyed it. They, we're told, like the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, went after unnatural desires, Jude 7. And the pictures of evil increasing in the world, and not just natural evil, but unnatural evil at a supernatural pace. And how did God respond? The flood. The whole world was washed away, except Noah. Because Noah was the one single righteous man who could be found. Noah is described as righteous. And even though he was a sinner, we understand that. Nobody is going to say Noah was perfect. But listen, Noah was righteous in his generation. That's what we're told. There was no one like Noah in the entire world who sought God, who wanted to please God, and who believed God. Noah believed God. And the story, the, the account of the flood, one of its most important points is to remind us that God is able to preserve His people in a sinful world and keep them from being destroyed. Even if there's only one righteous person on the face of the earth, God will not allow them to be swept away in the judgment of everybody else. But Noah's not the only example that's given here. There is another example given here. And for many of us, it is completely unexpected. Lot. No, there's not another character named Lot in the Bible that has been overlooked. It's this one. The nephew of Abraham from the city of Sodom. Peter tells us, Peter holds up Lot, not as a warning, but as an example of righteousness in the same vein as Noah. Now, it's ironic, really, because this is one character who is often cited as the archetypical example of a backslider, one who walked closely with God for a little while, but then after seeing the, the bounty of the world, of Sodom, he began to waver and was drawn away and he became a believer corrupted and drawn back by the lusts of the flesh. And the reason I say it's ironic is because what you find that the New Testament is saying about Lot well, it's a very different picture. Peter says that Lot is not an example of someone being drawn away into sin, but as somebody who is in a sinful place and maintaining his righteousness through it. He's not presenting Lot as a warning against backsliding. Lot is held up as a star of righteousness in a wicked and evil place. If you don't believe me, just go back and read it again. And then if you don't believe it after you read it that time, read it again. And, and, and pay attention to what, what Peter is saying. Because if anything is going to take some convincing this morning, it's probably that. That though Peter, listen, three times he calls Lot righteous. And once he calls Lot godly. As if he were anticipating the skepticism. 
we still doubt it. We need some convincing to believe that Lot really was righteous, a man who sought to honor and walk humbly with his God as contrasted against the rampant immorality in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I, and I think that's what's going to take some convincing this morning. Because before you can ever see Lot as an example of hope or of God's preservation, as, as Lot as an example of uh, in the same line as Noah, before you're going to look and be encouraged by him, you, out, you have to first actually believe what Peter says about him, that Lot is righteous. And so I want to give four proofs, four, from the book of Genesis of the righteousness of Lot. Four proofs from Genesis 18 through 19. First, Lot is like his uncle Abraham. The passages go through great lengths to, to show this. Lot is a lot more like Abraham than you probably realize. So turn to, turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, starting verse 1, going to verse 8. It says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre where he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought that you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried back into his tent and said to Sarah, Quick, he said, get three seas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. And then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and he set these before them. While they ate, they, he stood near them under the tree. So when you read this about Abraham, what you are seeing is an outward display of righteousness. Abraham, because he fears God, because he desires to honor the Lord, he shows hospitality to these three strangers. And hospitality in the ancient world is no small thing. We don't think of it with remotely the same urgency or, or attach the same level of godliness to it as it had. And part of that really is because our world is not the same as it was in Abraham's day. And we'll get to hospitality soon, what it is. But what I want you to notice here is what Abraham did when he saw these travelers. No one disputes that Abraham was a friend of God. This is uh, actually the chapter where it says as much. And though not perfectly, certainly Abraham is an example of faith for us to follow. So what does this friend of God, godly example, do? How should a godly person respond when they find strangers in need? When he sees them, he greets them. He gets up from the entrance of his tent, moves as quickly as a, as a 90-year-old man can, goes towards them, gets their attention, and when he does, he shows tremendous respect by bowing low to the ground before them, humbling himself. Then he invites them, even implores them. He says, come and, and stay with me. He's a good host. He's not going to allow them to travel by his care without being cared for. He says, you're, you're not going to walk by my tent without coming in to dine at my table. You're not going to pass through here without refreshing yourself at my expense. And so he offers them something to drink. He offers to have their feet cleaned. He provides a place for them to rest. And he gets them something to eat. And it's not just 
something. He has the fatted calf slaughtered. He brings curds and milk and he has a feast to honor them. He gives them the best that he can honor and then he serves them under the tree. And you hear about this and you, you, you see Abraham's generosity and you think to yourself, that's, a, that's so kind. That's so lavish. What an example for us. And you'd be right to think that. Because lavish kindness and hospitality towards others, especially those who cannot repay, even if they're strangers, is and has universally been a Christian virtue. And if you look at Genesis chapter 19, guess what? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And when Lot discovers the same travelers in his town, what does he do? He responds exactly like Abraham did. Genesis 19, verse 1. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. Abraham was in the opening of his tent. Lot is in the gate of the city. When they see the men, they run up to them and greet them and bow down low to the ground. Abraham and Lot do the exact same thing. They treat these angels in the same way. Lot implores them, even insisting, even demanding that they come and allow him to show uh, them kindness. He offers to give them refuge for the night, a place to rest, a place for refreshment. He offers to have their feet washed and then provides them with a feast. He does exactly what Abraham did. And the Bible here is showing us that Lot is righteous like Abraham. And you say, well, that's just the custom for the time. Everyone showed this kind of hospitality in the ancient world. Well, it's true that the ancient world did put a high premium on hospitality, but just because a culture believes in a virtue doesn't mean that everybody does it. And that's as true today as it has ever been. The ideal and the practice are in two very different places, but it's not that way for Lot, because Lot and nobody else in the city showed kindness to these two strangers. And why did he do it? Because Lot was righteous. Lot feared the Lord. And the second mark of Lot's righteousness is his hospitality. The word for hospitality literally means kindness to strangers. To show hospitality then is to show kindness to someone that you don't know and probably have never met. Probably will never meet again. And... Uh, the reason why hospitality is elevated like this is twofold. One of the reasons why it's elevated is because they can't pay you back, right? They are traveling. And, and, and keep in mind, in the ancient world, there were no such things as hotels or restaurants or anything like that. If you were traveling from city to city, it was dangerous. You couldn't stay out on the road. You'd get robbed. You'd get eaten by a lion. You couldn't stay in the middle of a city. You'd get, uh, you'd, you'd get accosted by the locals, it was a dangerous place to be traveling. And it was a, an act of not just to bring them in and keep them, but to protect them by bringing them into your home. That's connected with hospitality. And so one of the ways that people uh, honored the Lord in the ancient world was being hospitable to those who were traveling. Now, if they're traveling through, they're not going to be able to pay you back, are they? 
They'll be gone in a few days. It's unlikely you'll ever see them again. And so hospitality is a selfless act of service. It doesn't demand anything in return. It's pouring out generosity on strangers. But not only is it selfless, in the Bible, hospitality is sacred. It's a picture of how God deals with us. And hospitality is one of the ways we can most imitate Him in the world. Right? Because God, out of the overflow of His generous and kind-heartedness, invites at great cost to Himself strangers and sojourners and even enemies to come and dine freely at His table. Did you know that? That hospitality is a picture of the Gospel. In the same way that God brings us into His home and we dine at His table, so we imitate Him by having friends and strangers come and dine at our expense at ours. In fact, some ancient cultures like the Greeks and Romans, they believed that, uh, that guests ought to be treated with the same respect and reverence that would be shown to the gods if they were visiting your home. Treat your guests as though they were divine. And what expense would be too much to pay if the Lord Himself were sitting at your table? And you say, yeah, well, that was the pagans. Well, even the book of Hebrews says, in being hospitable, you may have entertained angels unaware. That's in the book of Hebrews. And actually, right here in Genesis, we read about Abraham doing exactly that, showing hospitality to the Lord of glory. And Lot serves two angels. Hospitality was a sacred duty and one was expected to protect his guests with his life. So hospitality, not just a random act of kindness. A sacred duty and an honor. And Lot takes it unbelievably serious. Look at verses 4-9. through nine. But before they lay down, so the angels have come, they've been fed, it's time to go to sleep. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, young and old, all the people to the last man, all of them, without one missing, surrounded the house. And they called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to meet the men at the entrance of his door. Uh, entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and now he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. The historian L.P. Hartley wrote that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. One of the objections that always comes against Lot's righteousness is the despicable offering of his daughters to the perverse crowd. It's difficult for us to understand what's going on here, but there are a few possibilities exist. Now it could be that Lot was offering his daughters to save his guests and was being Cowardly. That's possible, but I think unlikely. It could be that Lot is panicking and in his desperation said something he would never actually follow through on. It's hard to say what would come out of our mouths if we were in a similar situation with a bloodthirsty mob tearing, tearing at the door to break it down and get in. 
and kill everybody in the house. It could also be that Lot was calling their bluff and rebuking the crowd knowing that his offer would convict them. And I say this because Lot didn't open the do door and, and push his daughters. Lot went out himself and closed the door behind him. And uh, his offer did convict the crowd. The crowd perceives what Lot has said not as an offering, but as a judgment on them. That's the Sodomite's response. This foreigner, this sojourner, now he thinks he's the judge. Or it could be that in the typical Middle Eastern fashion, like you see so many times in the Old Testament, he is speaking in hyperbole. Right? Like when the king says, when the king says, ask for anything up to half my kingdom. How many times do you read that? Anything up to half of the kingdom. It doesn't mean he's actually going to offer up half of the kingdom. It's just the way they talked with these incredible exaggerations. Could be something like that. Where Lot is telling them, I will give you whatever you want, even my daughters, even that which I prize most if you'll leave my guests alone. I mean, remember, Lot was, we're told, a very wealthy man, and everybody in the city knew it. Most likely, it's a combination of all four of those things, and my goal is not to exonerate Lot, but at least to give him a fair hearing. I think the point being made here is as far as hospitality goes, no price is too high for Lot to pay. He would protect them, his guests, whatever the cost was to himself. Thirdly, both Abraham and God attest to Lot's righteousness in the book of Genesis. The Old Testament does always, when it attributes righteousness to people, does it on account of their faith, but it doesn't ignore the righteous works and deeds that flow from that faith. That's why James says, faith without works is dead. We don't see a dead faith in Lot. And even today, we know that when someone claims to belong to God, yet they're living in secret sin, and they're never practicing any kind of spiritual discipline, they're never in the Word, they're never in prayer, and they're living in a way that's habitually contrary to the Word of God, that their profession of faith is not real. If anyone loves God, we're told in 1 John, they will walk as Jesus walked. So to say that Lot is righteous and then yet terribly backslidden here defeats the point that Peter is making. And it doesn't fit with the testimony of Abraham or of God. Abraham knows Lot. And he is praying that God would spare the cities, five cities and the plains, for the sake of ten righteous people. And when he's praying that, he has Lot in mind. He is praying that the Lord would spare the cities on account of him and nine others. And God says he will. He will spare the cities and all of their inhabitants, however many tens of thousands that, that are there for the sake of ten righteous people. But you know what I think? I think Abraham could have gone even lower. I think God would have spared the cities on the plains if there were only five righteous people in them. One for each city. You say, why do I say that? Because when the judgment begins, only one righteous person was found. And for his sake, and in answer to his prayer, one city was spared. The Psalms warn that if we cherish sin in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. And yet here is Lot, 
asking for favor, that God would... He says, God, if I have found favor in your sight, he says, spare this small city of Zoar for my sake. And you say, well, that's selfish. Spare it for him. Now, that misses the point. God just said in the previous chapter He would spare the cities for the sake of the righteous living in them. When Lot asks God to spare the city of Zoar for his sake, and God answers positively, God is also answering His promise to Abraham that He will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And the fact that God spares the city for Lot's sake is God Himself attesting to the righteousness of Lot. For the sake of Lot, one righteous person I have found, one city will be spared. And then finally, there's an objection. That Lot should have left Sodom or never been there in the first place. You have a progression that starts in Genesis 13. Lot sees the fields. You remember they're arguing. The herdsmen are arguing with one another because both of them are very wealthy. Abraham and Lot. Lot sees the the, the, the plains, it says, oh, they're good for cattle. I'll go there. You stay here. So he goes and he pitches his tent near Sodom. And we think, well, he must be greedy. And then you find him living in Sodom a few chapters later. Now he's becoming complacent. And then you find him in the very gates of Sodom. And gates in the ancient world were places of commerce and power. Right? Governments would meet at the gates. Business was carried out at the gates. Contracts were made at the gates. And so the fact that he's sitting there shows now he's an influential person in this most depraved place. And if all you had was Genesis and no more of your Bible, maybe you could say that this is an example of Lot falling in or that he's becoming complacent or even complicit, that he didn't care about holiness or righteousness, that he, that he saw that the land was good and he loved the prospect of wealth more than God and so he went to Sodom. That Lot is a warning against the deceitfulness of sin and the love of money and the danger of being entangled in the world. Well, the Bible doesn't say any of those things explicitly about Lot. They're all inferences. They're all uh, assumptions that come from kind of reading between the lines. And because it's an assumption, it could be wrong and has to be squared with the rest of Scripture. And when you consider the words of the New Testament and the epistle of Peter, then understanding Lot as slowly falling into sin is not the right way to understand him. Because if you were to say that to the Apostle Peter, he would tell you, look, you've missed the point completely. That's not what the story is about at all. So what is it about? Peter tells us it's about God's ability to save believers who are living in a wicked, sin-saturated world. Lot does not represent the backslider falling into worldliness. He represents us and how we are to be in the world and not of the world. That's the context Right? Lot is not rushing headlong into immorality. He's not being greedy. In the same way, you want to compare the progression of Lot? Well, I think what Peter says makes a progression like this. He moves to the city. He becomes more wealthy. He becomes more influential in the town in the same way that you might get a new job and then get a promotion and then be higher up in that company, even though the company may be as corrupt as it could be. But that's the picture being presented here of Lot. He is like Noah, who is alone righteous, even though he's surrounded by evil constantly and on every side. In Lot's case, even his wife. His wife looks back and is turned into a pillar of salt. And, and I read the story of Lot, and I, I'm encouraged. 
Because what I see in the story of Lot is God is able to keep His people. He is able to preserve His people even when the influence of the world is as close as an unbelieving spouse. Lots of picture of John 17, 14 through 19. We're in the world, but not of the world. It's a picture of 1 Corinthians 5. If you want to avoid association with sin and sinners, the only way you can do it is by leaving the world. We aren't called to leave it or to be taken out of it, physically at least, but to shine in it as a light and preserve it like salt, which is exactly what Lot does. And so he's not called to come out of Sodom. And there's no sin in him being there. Just like there's no sin in you living in the city of Fredericton or whatever other city you find yourself in. Because if you are to really take a look at the spiritual, moral barometer of the city, you're going to find there's not much of a difference. And so Lot answers the fear of believers. That fear that says... What about the world getting into me? And I'm amazed that Lot is held up as an example of someone being infected and captured by the world. Yet in Peter's epistle, it's the total opposite. The story of Lot is there to encourage believers that God can keep them in the midst of darkness. And the reason I've spent so much time laboring on the righteousness of Lot is because when we read about him, we think bad, right? Bad man. And it's hard to shake. We, we think Lot is not like us, right? He's over here, we're over here, and so he's not an example of anything except what not to be. We're on one side and there's Lot, he's over here, he's playing with fire, and when the judgment comes, he escapes by the skin of his teeth, just like people who play with fire do. And Lot gets what Lot deserves. As long as you believe that, you will never be encouraged the way Peter wants you to be encouraged. So what does Peter say? Lot is a righteous man. Lot is righteous. Lot has a righteous soul. Lot has other translations, a righteous heart. And Peter calls him godly. And godly is always you. Because when we talk about righteous, we'll say, well, yes, he was righteous by faith. He was saved by faith. But still, terribly, Peter calls him godly. And every time the word godly is used in the Scripture to describe someone, it is used to describe someone who is upright and outstanding in their generation. That's what every Christian is called to be. And that's Lot. He showed great care and concern for the angels. He sought to protect those who represented God. He was an outcast because of his uprightness. I mean, look how quickly the men of Sodom turned against him. And when he heard of the coming judgment, like Noah, he believed God. He believed that the city was in danger of destruction. It probably did not surprise him at all. And when that happened, and the angel said, do you know anybody? What does Lot do? He becomes an evangelist, and he goes to his in-laws and, and, and those around him, telling them, you have to flee, even though they mock him. His warning itself... Warning them is an act of faith. He believes what God has said and that the city is going to be destroyed even though that morning it's probably clear blue skies. He aimed to obey God. He wants to leave the cities just hung up. I mean, can you really fault him for that? And when he did leave, guess what? He did not look back. He didn't put his hand to the plow and look back. Lot did not look back. But his righteousness is marked another way by Peter. Peter. 
Verse 7, He was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented uh, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He was greatly distressed and grieved by everything going on around him. I mean, we talk of Lot as he's engulfed in sin. Peter says he hated it. He hated the sin that was around him with an intensity that made him sick to his stomach every single day, which is more that can be said for most of us. Oh yeah, he may not have always been the best father, and he could have been enamored with his possessions, though evidently not much because he didn't try to save anything when he heard the fires were coming and fled. I mean, no one can look at Lot and say he was hoping in his wealth, or he loved it more than the Word of God, because when God said it's going to be destroyed, he abandoned it all to destruction. Listen, he, he would have no part with the filth of the culture that he lived in. He was, what's the word, tormented, tortured in his soul. And if you go back and speak to Lot and you could ask him, what do you think of living in Sodom? He'd just hang his head and sigh and change the question. Every day he lived here was torture for him. Even though he was in the gates and even though he was successful and even though he had acquired some level of wealth and influence, every day grieved him. Just like living here grieves some of you, even though you have acquired some influence and wealth and possessions, you would trade them all to be free of the evil around you. All of these successes, they didn't mean anything to Lot because of the lawless deeds he saw and heard all the time. He was, as one translation says, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. I hope that can be said of us. You know, don't, don't talk about Lot as someone who grew callous and tolerant and insensitive of sin. Lot tells us to take a look at ourselves. Things that used to make you sick to your stomach and songs that used to torment you when you heard them and now you can hum along. At programs you would never dare to watch and now you can tolerate them. And words that you wouldn't dare say, thoughts you wouldn't dare harbor in your heart, sights from which you'd turn away your eyes, now they find a place and have a corner of real estate in your affections. No, no, Lot's not the backslider. His torment, his righteousness exposes the backsliding in us. And he forces us to contemplate how complicit maybe we've become to the sin around us. And when was the last time you were tortured in your soul, not sporadically, every day on account of the sin around you? When was the last time you could say that this, this happened? Has it been consistent? Lot was worn out with anguish and exhausted to suffering by the unprincipled, immoral, outrageous, decadent, proud behavior of these people. These people with no standards. Like Noah in his day, Lot stood against the sin in his. He was not swallowed up by the licentious, hedonistic, sexual indulgence. He wasn't swallowed, uh, swallowed up by the, the constant bacchanalia. He wasn't taken in 
He wasn't calloused to it or sucked in. It made him sick to his stomach when all of the sodomites and homosexuals in the city gathered together in the streets to rape the angels that were in his house and then celebrated the perversion and then threatened to kill anyone who would stop them. The whole society followed lies, followed their own lusts, followed unrestrained impulses of the flesh, and rejected God, and rejected righteousness, and rejected everything that was sensible and good. Everyone in the five cities embraced wholeheartedly this kind of depravity, except Lot. And when the trial came, and when the judgment fell, God saved him. And so why is this so encouraging? Why is this so reassuring? Because if you're a Christian... You're like me. One of your biggest fears is that one day you will fall away. You'll fall back into that miry pit that God saved you out of. You'll go back to that futile way of life. You're worried it can draw you away. Certainly the pulls are strong. And you feel them. You just do this and you can have your job back. You just capitulate a little bit and we'll all be off your back. Oh, you, you do this and you can be, we'll, we'll, we'll let you pass the bar exam. You just compromise on this conviction. God will keep you. Cling to Him and He will save you from falling. You, maybe you fear that you'll let it be, let, be led astray by false teachers. Especially new believers. You hear all kinds of things. and You maybe have never even read the Bible yet. Yet. And you hear all of these things. You say, how am I? There's so much out there. It's just a click away. How do I know I'm not going to be taken in by all of these things? Deception is everywhere. Painted with godliness. Wolves in sheep's clothing. I mean, sometimes even in your naivety, you can listen to things or read things or go places and hear sermons that are not good. Listen, God will keep you. I remember as a, as a new believer, and I mean new believer, not even a year, I, I went to a youth rally and it was nothing but, nothing but perverse talk and disgusting manipulation that resulted in immorality. I'll spare you the details. It was not good. And, and I stood there watching all of this go on and I, I'd only been a believer for maybe a couple of months. I'd maybe read, I'd maybe read the book of Matthew. And so I'm watching all of this happen. I know something is wrong. I have no idea what it is. But something here isn't right. And you, you've probably been in that position too. Where you, you hear something and you just know, I, this sounds Christian, the guy's quoting the Bible, but this is not the way it is. There's just something what he's saying is just rubbing me the wrong way. And if somebody asked you what it was, all you could say, I have no idea. But I know it's not that. Why? Who's defending you in that moment? God is. He's keeping you from false teaching and destructive theology. Now, He expects you to use your, your faculty, of course. He's given you reason. He's given you a mind. He commands you to be watchful, to look out for these things, to be able to discern the truth, to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in you. 
So it's not a call to be ignorant and coast and say, God's got my back. It's not that. God has expectations for His people to overcome and persevere and strive. But God will keep them. When they encounter something that's above maybe where they're able to handle, God will keep them. And as the deceptions become more cunning, the more the Lord is at work to defend you and prevent you from being influenced by them. God keeps His people. Second Peter, Jude, all of these books are about God's ability to preserve His people, especially from false teaching and how to recognize it. Or maybe you're worried that the world will get into you. Maybe you're worried that the world will get into you and dull you to its sin, callous you, harden your heart, desensitize you. And I'm not talking about someone who rushes into sin and seeks it out. Someone who tunes into it or is entertained by it. Anyone who seeks out sin can count on their souls being cauterized and left unfeeling. That'll harden your heart to holiness. That'll lead to you being saved by the skin of your teeth as through fire, if at all. But what about the job site conversation that you cannot help but overhear? Or the parades and the way that people dress even in the supermarket? What about what you hear on the radio or what might cross your eyes at the gym? What about the advertisements that are selling or promoting what God despises? Or computer pop-ups? Or corporate screensavers? Or the hundreds and hundreds of unavoidable ways that the world has to subtly inject its poison into your soul? Well, what then? God knows how to rescue His people. I mean, if there's anybody in the Bible who could maybe relate to us, in how depraved the world around him was, I think it would be Lot. God rescues him. Verse 9, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. What trial? The trial of enduring the evil in the world and the judgment that comes on account of it. God can keep you safe. And He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He knows how to keep you from falling. I remember a story my youth pastor told me a long time ago that I'll never forget. And he's telling me a story about how he was out fishing in the ocean and he caught a fish. I don't remember what it was, some saltwater fish. And he brought it home. His wife prepared it, cooked it up for him. He was excited to, to dig into the fish. And so he took his fork, he broke off a piece, put it in his mouth, and he was disappointed. He said, doesn't taste that good. It was, it was missing something. And so he reached out, took the salt shaker, shook some salt onto the fish, took another bite and thought, oh, this is much better. And then it struck him. He remembered being out in the boat. He remembered the spray of the water. He remembered the smell of the air. And he remembered the taste on his lips. He remembered when he'd gone to the same ocean before and gotten a mouthful of water unexpectedly. And the one thing running through his mind over and over and over again was the ocean is full of salt. It's everywhere. There's so much salt in that water that a thimbleful of it can make you sick. And yet, when he cut into the fish that spends its entire life submerged and engulfed and surrounded by this salt-infested sea, 
There was no salt in it. The salt water never entered into the fish, even though the fish was surrounded by it its entire life. Brothers and sisters, just like the fish in the salty sea, just like Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, and just like us in this world that is held captive to the evil one, God is able to keep sin out of His people. As perverse as it gets, it will not get into you because of Him. And so if you're afraid of sin, fear being cauterized by it, fear it dulling you to godliness, or you notice its effects starting to take hold. God can preserve and save. If He can preserve and save one of His own in Sodom, He can do it anywhere, no matter how dark it becomes. So go to Him. If you have been complacent or have been tolerating it, repent if you must. Don't become complacent, but fight against sin in the world by walking humbly with and drawing near to and drawing strength from the Lord Jesus Christ by believing that He can keep you pure. He will not lose any that the Father has given Him. He will keep them to the very end. He will keep you to the very end. He will not let you be deceived. He will not let you be lost. He will not let the world come in and corrupt you he will not allow you to be swept away in the tide of judgment or in fires falling from the skies. In every temptation or trial that you face, God knows how to deliver you from them all. Do not become complacent or tolerant or say, well, it's just inevitable that there's going to be a little bit of hardness in my heart. Look around me. Look at Lot, grieved, tormented, vexed, anguished every single day. And if God can work that in Him, if you go to Him and draw near to Him, He will work it in you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those who are concerned about the evil that is around them, that it would not get in them. I pray that You would encourage them this morning, that You are able to save to the uttermost those who come to come to God through Christ. I pray that You would encourage them, Lord, that You are able to keep them and hold them fast. Lord, look at the fish in the sea and no salt gets into them. What a, what a wonderful thing You have put into this creation, Lord, for the encouragement to Your saints. Look at Lot in Sodom, surrounded, Lord, literally tearing at his door. And Lord, you preserved him and kept him. Look at Noah, one righteous man in the whole world. You didn't overlook him. Your, your gaze was on Noah with kindness and with warning. And you preserved him. And Lord, you will keep your people to the very end. Thank you. Thank you for your hand that is on us to keep us from falling. Amen.